Hey all, this is Jonathan Williams, part-time host of the Midrash NYC podcast and lead pastor of Forefront Church in New York City. Welcome back. We are so glad that we get to share with you today's episode. We talked with Casey Tiger. Casey is a pastor, he is a speaker, and he is a writer. His latest book, As I Recall, Discovering the Place of Our Memories in Our Spiritual Life, is fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. It's a book about how our memories inform and affect our spiritual life in deep and meaningful ways. We had a great conversation. We ended up talking about those memories. We talked about how the Bible is written and informed by memory, and the way we read our scripture is informed by our memory. Really fascinating, definitely worth getting into. And so without further ado, here is our conversation with Casey Tiger. As I recall, you know, a book that intersects memory and faith, and and it's not something I could have ever dreamed of. And so talk to me about how you got the idea uh, for this book, some of the stories that came out of this book, some of the the things you were thinking about before even a word got on the page. Yeah. Gosh, so much of it is comes out of, I, I think a book is a collation of somebody's life. And so, so much of the book actually started happening way before I ever thought about writing it. And, and that is not to say that it's this grand magical thing, but it, it, there's a run up. I think every, every book has this life run up to it. And so a lot of it had to do with working with people as a spiritual director and my conversations with them centered around how they experienced the divine and how they approached it and, uh, what they, you know, the kind of language they used or the the experiences they were having, and especially in the sense of people who were saying, I don't feel as close as I used to, or I feel distant or, and then my question to them would always be, so tell me about a time when you felt close. And so I was asking them to tap into an, a memory they had and how powerful that could be. Sometimes for some people, it was really difficult and confusing. Uh, but it got the discussion moving in the right direction. And how many times those conversations began, sometimes not even about, I, you know, they may not be having trouble experiencing God or the divine, but they were having difficulty with their life or making a decision. And by the time we drilled down on it, they, they tapped into something that had happened maybe in their childhood or maybe in their teenage years. And the realization was dawning on them as they're sitting across from me of how much that actually was still calling the shots, driving their will drives and emotions. And so that was part of it. Part of it is I'm by personality type and by uh, temperament. I, I'm a sort of inward looking person. And so I'm always examining, trying to examine my own motives and uh, just seeing how much past events and memories had shaped my own experience. And then, um, then the witness of this, of the scriptures, uh, you know, as I was reading first Testament and new Testament, I'm finding everything that they were doing, the conversations they were having, or the teachings about who God is all had to do with things that had happened in the past and how deeply important memory was for them. So all those things sort of came together. And as I started looking at stories other people had been telling me and stories I would tell about my own life, I realized there has to be an intersection here between how we're formed and how we change and the kind of things that we have rattling around in our skulls on a day-to-day basis. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a couple of interesting things you said in terms of, you know, being a, being a, a spiritual director and you get to experience the way people approach the divine. And so I, I guess in that sense, do you find that people uh, are approaching the divine based on memory or experience? Um, hey, I have this memory of, of, of um, my childhood being this way, and I have this kind of home, which means my God is this kind of God. Is that an experience that you would say is typical for people, uh, or is it a, a, a person-to-person kind of thing? I think it's person-to-person, but I think in general, most people don't start there. Like most of our narratives that we carry are pretty much assumed, uh, mostly because they're so deeply woven in that we don't even really think about them anymore. So if I prompted someone to say, tell me about the first time you can remember ever hearing the word God and who's the person that told you and what was that situation like? What kind of person were they? Like there's a whole universe, Mm -hmm. like there's cosmos of spiritual growth and habits and uh, dispositions and and worldviews that are all packed right into that one little thing. And it could have been like some summer Bible program where they were jacked up on cookies and Kool-Aid. And that's when they heard God the first time. And, and they're 45 now. And that's still, that's still the picture of God that they carry with them. So I think it's person to person, but overall, I don't know that anybody recognizes how deeply those past experiences with church or God or scripture or spiritual practices or pastors or authority, um, or even their sexuality or their relationships, how much that has been affected by these these very sometimes very simple, very slight seeming kind of memories. But once they tap back into them, they start to see the power that they have. Yeah, most definitely. I think, uh, I mean, yeah, I think in my case, some of the unpacking I've had to do in my own spiritual life comes back to certain memories that I have that this is, this my God has been this, difficult experience that I had at, at church this one time, or, or my God is the overbearing, you know, the overbearing family member who, who I'm scared of, you know, uh, those kinds of things. You said that for people, it's not something they identify or realize right away. I know for me, that was true, right? It, it took some time. It took a little bit of therapy. How do you, how do you go about the process or the journey of helping people connect memory to spirituality? I think it the first thing that you have to do is is create an environment for the person where they realize this is a compassionate step that there's going to be a lot of a lot of times we don't uncover memories without some suffering. Mm-hmm. There are some that are beautiful that shape us that make us who we are um, but there are also some that are are pretty dark and have sharp rough edges. so I think about it in terms of like gathering shells. If you go on the beach at night and you gather shells, you're going to pick up some really perfect, beautiful ones. You're also going to pick up some that are, you know, on the surface, pretty broken and disgusting. But when you turn them over, there's a there's a beautiful shine to the bottom. And so for people's memories, I think as long as they know as for a spiritual director, I want them to know this is a compassionate, hospitable experience that we're stepping into this in the care and compassionate reach of God, that there's no judgment. We're not going back so they can see how bad they are. So I think that's the the first step. And the other one is just to begin to break them down, um, break down especially how memories get formed. So that's where the neuroscience parts come in. And um, 
even though most people are like, oh, that seems really academic. When you start to start to give it to them in like in terms that make sense to a human's, you know, journey, that's a whole different thing. And talking about how these experiences we have, these sense experiences become memories, they get locked away. And if they slip past the 30 seconds we have as a short-term memory, they actually shape our brain differently and we hold them. And then those become stories. They become the way that we see the world. Uh, and then those stories become scripts that are the ways in which we live out the world. And so a lot of times I can use some examples that help people see, you don't have to talk in neuroscience terms. You can talk in like, okay, so have you ever been bitten by a dog? So you had that experience, you heard the sound, you felt the adrenaline, and now you have this, this memory that you can retrieve and anytime you want, really, because it's a pretty traumatic memory. And then uh, that creates a story. Like you have a whole worldview about dogs that has everything to do with that particular moment. And you live your life, whether you know it or not, in reference to that story. So you kind of, you probably avoid dogs and maybe you don't know why, but that experience is what caused that. So if I can get people to start thinking, and this is, and the reason I say this is because it's what I started doing. When I started thinking of my own journey in those terms, it helped me to start walking back the neuroscience process yeah. and seeing where it all began. In those journeys, I mean, you, you sort of hit on this for a, a second. Um, there's going to be a lot of pain in those journeys walking back. You talked about the broken shells, those pieces. And, uh, and so one of the interesting things I read right there at the beginning of the book was, hey, you know, I think we're called to die to self quite often. Uh, when we, you know, Jesus says that to us often. And it talks about, you know, grain just, or seed being left on the ground doesn't do anything unless it dies and grows again, right? And so how, how, how do you coax people through that part uh, of, of the intersectionality between spirituality and memory? Like, hey, pain and, and the journey backward is actually going to be a thing that's going to, to better your spiritual journey, your spiritual experience. So what, is, yeah, what does that look like? It's, a, it's very delicate. And I don't know that I have done it well. I know I've done it with some people. I've done it for myself. Um, actually, this it's interesting. You know, we're we're talking during Lent, and I I've been doing a Lent practice this time around, and it just seems like this Lenten season has been a season of death, not only because of you know pandemics and but other things that are going on. So I don't know that I have a perfect way of talking about that, but I think. I think the key step is to help people see, to gain a vision of how much better it would be to encounter this than to try and live as if it doesn't make a difference. Because we have this line in, you know, in a lot of Christian circles, we have this line about you forgive and you forget. Right. Uh, we even have some biblical imagery of God casting the sins in Revelation into a sea of forgetfulness. And and while there's some helpful beauty to that, I, I don't think that's I don't think that's the human experience of pain. We may forgive, but we probably would not be healthy if we forgot. Uh, probably better served we would be we would be better served to remember it differently. And so that's what I try to do is create a vision of you're going to deal with this painful thing. It might be your fault. It might be the fault of someone else's. Either way, now it lies on you and it's changing your life. And the reason we're talking about it is because it's changing your life in a way that maybe you would rather it not. 
And so to try and pitch to that person, it would be better for you to encounter this with all the little deaths that come along with it, these little funerals that you're going to have to have in order to come through. And on the other side, you remember it, but you remember it differently. Right. Like you begin to redeem that memory to give value back to it, whereas value has been taken from it by us just trying to fight it. Because that's the that's the myth. Like you fight this thing, you pretend it doesn't exist, and you're actually better for it when it's the exact opposite. Right. We pump this thing full of strength. And the longer we keep it in the dark, the longer we keep it in the shadows. I think that's why Jesus was constantly saying all this stuff that happens in the darkness is going to be brought to the light because that's the kind of place where surgery happens. It's the place where healing happens. So, so I think the first step is to help people see it would be better for you to go back and then come forward regardless of how much that might hurt. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, there's something to that, right? I mean, the idea that you are literally changing up uh, neural pathways when you tell people, Hey, the idea of forgive and forget doesn't make the sense we think it makes. Yeah. Like we literally have to re, you know, I always think of it as building new highways, right? Like, well, this, this highway, we're going to close this exit ramp now and we got to build it again. And you, you also mentioned in the book, uh, the idea of the past doesn't define us, right? Yeah. And the truth is it does, you know, it, it does define us. So what do you say to someone who's, you know, who says, well, the past doesn't define me, you know, we're sitting here, we're going, well, it does. Yeah. What's the better way to talk about it? I think the language I use for people like that is to say it it doesn't define us, but it definitely determines some things. And I think if building the great thing I have as a spiritual director is to be able to to facilitate some long term relationships, because in the book, the one thing I I hope people catch is that this isn't a weekend project. Like you need a you need a long term relationship with someone who can help sort of be the midwife of some of these things that are happening. Because as much things are are dying, as much as things are dying, there are also a lot of things being born. Mm -hmm. And and that's sort of that Paschal cycle thing that we have in the Christian tradition of every crucifixion means resurrection. And every resurrection means ascension. So something dies, something begins again, and things are never the same as a result. And so I get to have these long-term relationships with people and help walk them through the past doesn't have to define you. It doesn't tell you who you are. It doesn't call you by your name. You're beloved in whom he's well-pleased. That's never changed. It just determines how you're going to work out that belovedness. Um, as, a, as a child whose parents divorced uh, after 19 years, that hasn't changed my identity, uh, the hurt that I've experienced because of that. But it has determined how I'm working out my vocation. Like I feel this invitation when I come across people who have gone through their parents have divorced. Like there's a wisdom that I have now that I feel I can offer them. And I don't say that flippantly because, you know, wisdom is a hard earned thing. But I feel like if I if I'm going to redeem some of the pieces of that memory, part of that's going to be to say the past doesn't define me, but it does determine what I do with for this person or with this person. And so all these little broken things get to be a gift that they, that we then give away. And that's part of what I tell people is you may not want to deal with this, but the best part of who you are, like that rich, holy goodness that God has in mind for you, it's probably going to come at the tail end of, of what feels like chemo, what feels like something mm-hmm. very, very painful. Um, once you give it back some value, then you can give it away. 
Yeah, I would love for you to talk to our listeners about uh, about that even scripturally. I mean, I know you mentioned Paul. Paul's a great example. So, so how does that play out in the life of someone like Paul, who legitimately changes the history of this world in, yeah. uh, by by saying that this that my past did define me, and here's here's how it here's how it determined the future. So, yeah. talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's amazing how it, Paul, as a person, uses this uh, this whole idea of memories. And the way he uses it is actually in a humbling way. He takes all of his past experiences, all the positives, all the exploits, all the things that he had learned. And the, he, was, he was the holiest of the holy. He was a rule follower of rule followers. And then he comes to the terms with it and says, but all that stuff is garbage. And what he does is the way he redeems it is by putting it in context. It says, in the light of this new kingdom, that I get to proclaim in light of this Jesus who radically transformed everything that we all know, I, I'm re I'm reimagining all of that stuff. So I'll, st- I'll still keep all my teaching. I'll still keep all the stuff I learned as a, as a good student of my Jewish roots, but I'm now radically reinterpreting it in the light of what's going on now. I think of it more in terms of, of what happened to Israel and as a nation, there's a corporate memory of exile and there's exodus and then there's the wilderness and then there's the promised land for a while and then there's exile disobedience then exile then return then rinse and repeat (laughs) so it just keeps going and going and i think i feel like people resonate with that story not as a corporation but as an individual like yeah yeah i feel like every six months or so i kind of do the disobedience thing and i get sideways and i get you know divided in my spirit and uh, I end up sort of out in the wilderness, and then I make this return. And so it's those experiences of pain, of wandering in the wilderness. It's those experiences of disobedience saying, you know, it'd be better if I could just do this myself. Redeeming that memory and saying, but last time I did that, that sucked. <laughs> so I'm coming back around again, realizing to live inside this kingdom and in this obedience to this deep inner thing that God is doing is always better than wandering in the wilderness. So maybe next time when I come back around, I can give some value and worth to that. That's an easier one. The harder one is when someone else has sent you into exile. When it's not your fault, but when it's your responsibility. Those are the harder ones for us to process through. Yeah. In that situation, when somebody else sends us to that place, when we're kicked out, when, uh, when our tribe tells us we're no longer welcome, in that sense, how do you find redemption in that? Well, that's a longer road. And that that is just the that is the pure journey of forgiveness. And I think the gift that our memories can give us when it comes to forgiveness is hopefully the realization that for our brain to change, it takes repetitive things. Mm-hmm. So our brain loves routine and it functions differently because of it. As an aside, the reason you get all your great ideas in the shower is because you're doing something routine that you already have a groove in your brain for. The other yeah. part of your brain then is like, okay, since that's all taken care of, let's ideate, let's dream, let's have this big other conversation over here. All the while, you're not thinking about how you wash your toes or anything. You're just doing it. <laughs> and so I think for our brains, uh, you, the science tells us that for our brains to change, it takes a long time. And so when I apply that same thinking to forgiveness, it takes a long time for us to begin to root out 
the hurt and the significance of the hurt. So it's not just do I hurt, it's why do I hurt. And so you're sort of shaving away layers over time. And that's why, you know, I think forgiveness looks more like one day we're fine with that person. We think we might want to have coffee with them, maybe. The next day, we wouldn't be upset if something horrible happened to them. Mm -hmm. And then the third day, something in the middle. You know, so it's this constant journey. I feel like forgiveness is less of of an event than it is like an address. It's just a place we move into. And so when someone, when it's not our fault, when it's not our fault, but it's our responsibility, that process of forgiveness is about remembering what happened, but also diving into the details of it. Like what was going on at the time? Why was that? Why does this hurt me? And what's the deeper piece that I need to get to underneath all of this? No, that's really good. I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I love what you just said. I think for me, uh, our, our old pastor at our church, she preached on Jesus and saying, forgive 70 times seven. And, uh, and she said, you know, I think that means exactly what you just said. I think Jesus was saying, you know, this first time I forgive, it's great. I'm, I may want to have coffee with you. The second time I forgive, it's because I, I want to see you starved. <laughs> and the third time I do it, it's because I don't want to see you starve, but I don't want you to eat at my table. And it yeah. keeps going, you know, and, and so the language you just gave for that is helpful. I, I think that's the language of forgiveness. I appreciate that. Um, and inviting inviting people to this too. I always want to. We're I'm inviting people in this book and in the work that I do to something that I I in no way think is simple. Um, it's stacking things on top of each other. Uh, but life is complicated. It's interesting how we have these very complex spiritual lives. And yet when there's a crisis, we hope for a very simple and easy to apply answer. <laughs> and it just, it just doesn't work that way because that's inefficient and ineffectual. So we want the three steps to forgive, which is fine if your forgiveness isn't all that complex. But I have a run into a story where forgiveness is necessary, where there hasn't been complexity. And right. so I always want to help remind people, like, I know I'm inviting you to something hard, and complex and difficult, but it has to match the process of processing this, the process of processing. How about that? The process of dealing (laughs) with this has to match the complexity of what's actually happened. Yeah. And it it makes me think of, you know, the hermeneutic or the way we we read scripture. And, you know, maybe I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, I don't know, or maybe this is too simplistic of a thought. But it seems, you know, there's a bit of a phenomenon, especially in the past couple hundred years, where scripture is read as a guide by uh, a guidebook, a step by step. Here's how you solve this problem. Here's how this works. Here's here's the law here. And uh, and I think what we've done is we simplified scripture a lot. And so uh, and so, of course, when it's time to forgive, it's like, well, we just forget. We, we just it's simple. In that sense. Would you agree with that approach? And if so, how do we need to, I guess, retrain our brains to see scripture again? Yeah. I I think we've lost the ability to see scripture as we see all the, you know, the wind of the divine blowing through it and how it creates these moments. I mean, there, there are things that have happened in my life in response to scripture that have been just, they've been they've been incredible beyond what I could really describe, which is, which is part of it. 
But I think in in seeing that, we've lost the fact that it is, it's actually a very human book. You know, Mm -hmm. the first five books of the Bible are all memoir. So there was no one sitting around like jotting this. Okay, how many elephants was that? Oh, two. Great. (laughs) There's nobody doing that. These are stories that are passed down through the memories of generations and generations. And so they're cultivating a story that gives them identity, but also that describes what it means to be a human being what it means to be alive, what it means to love, to hate, to feel like you belong to something, uh, to worship a God, uh, to disappoint that God. And so I, I think using it as a guidebook takes all the humanity out of it. Yeah. Because you can slide into a scripture and apply it to your life, but in context, in the human context of it, it's actually something that's not terribly helpful. Uh, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann talks about Joseph. And he talks about Joseph in a way nobody does. You know, he, he has this moment where he goes to work for Pharaoh and there's this, fi- this famine. And his advice is to store up all the grain. Well, when he does that, he creates this unwinnable supply and demand kind of thing. So he became like the first superpower nation to withhold <laughs> resources from other countries. And right. that's what brings his brothers back. And so I'm not condemning that. I'm just saying like that angle is really important where we're like, oh, you should be like Joseph. Well, how far you want to go with that there, chief? Do you want to, <laughs> do you want to do that part or do you want to do? So I think using it as a rule book is where we miss out on that. And also not seeing the tradition, even the name of the podcast, Midrash, we're talking about people living with the scriptures. Right. And bringing their own memories, their own stories and scripts and experiences to the text and finding their way through on a basis of that. So, yeah, I think the user's manual approach isn't helpful because it loses the thing that actually I think is most valuable to us to be like, oh, these people are messed up, too. And I mean, significantly so. And so how do I learn from that? Like, yes, I want to learn about the divine. But what about this thing? I want to learn yeah. about that too. And that's, I feel like that's what's really shaping, that's shaped me maybe more than anything. I don't know. What do you think? Do you, do you feel like that's shaped you a lot? No, it shaped me a great deal. Um, I don't know. I, I've done a lot of study of first and second Samuel, which means I'm all into David at this point. And, you know, this, this might sound controversial, but, you know, I've grew up my whole life like, oh, David and Bathsheba did a bad thing. And I'm like, she was part of the Me Too movement. She was she was coerced by a powerful man and really had no choice in this matter. Yeah. And so so you know when I put when I put culture and context back into the scriptures, they end up becoming fuller. And uh, and it allows me to do a couple things. It allows me to see like David being abhorrent in his behavior, and that's something that we should condemn. And yet there's this sense in which God still calls uh, still calls David. You know. This is my child. This is somebody that I still love. So, so what it does for me is it goes, okay, let's let's put culture and context back back in because we're going to see uh, things um, that that happen through lenses which we might not have had in the past. But I think what we'll end up seeing is the fact that God is more gracious and more loving and more inclusive in that process too. So it's and that a, even, yeah, yeah. So so it's been a, it's been an eye opener for me as as you know I study and we take our church through the process and. And, and thinking about um, even memory, right? As, as we go back to, you know, the book a bit, uh, just how many cultural, there, uh, cultural cues there are 
for us to remember to remember this time and this place uh, so that we're not doomed to repeat it again. Uh, and I think about that in our current context as a nation, you know, you know, we're not remembering some of the stuff we went through in the past and uh, it's going to hurt us. So, so I'm with you on this. In fact, I think it's what, um, I think it's the good news. And people say Christianity is good news or scripture is good news. I think that's what it is. It's, it's, it's reading it through a new lens and, and, and seeing that there is good news when we dig deep into culture and context of the, of the broken people behind it, right? Yeah. So yeah. So I'm and, I'm on I'm on page, the same page. And it has a dual. I think it does have a dual thing that goes back to what you were talking about earlier. The the dying to self sometimes is dying to the story we've been telling ourselves about scripture for so long, and that's that's something that could be for the quote unquote insiders, the people who have been a person of in a faith tradition for a long time. But the the flip of it is the redemptive part for someone who feels like they're on the periphery of faith and they don't belong. I've been reading, I'm teaching on the woman at the well and just how loaded that passage is. Mm, and Jesus yeah. tells the woman to go get her husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're, you're right. You have, you've had five and the person you're with right now isn't even your husband. And we so often read that as if she's some sort of moral vacuum and but when you reset that in context you know she couldn't divorce her own husband so this means she's been and then if she's divorced she can't work to provide for herself so this this being married thing is not a matter of morals it's a matter of survival for her and she's Mm -hmm. working on number six because she's got to live and so i think that rewrites a story for a lot of people who've been in it for a while and so they have to kind of die to the fact that oh I have to think of this differently, but for people who feel like they were that person who was on number five, working on number six, just to try and get by, suddenly there's a space for them, especially because of how Jesus treats her and speaks with respect to her and welcomes her. Um, so I, I think that sometimes it's the memory that she has, which is, I remember being left out and being pushed to the margins. And sometimes it's the memory of the religious people who said, that's not how I remember that story being taught and being able to redeem both of those. That's what the kingdom of God really looks like. I, I, amen. I mean, I absolutely love what you just said. And I think, um, I think when we open ourselves up, we, we, do, um, we do see uh, people who are, who are finding or are meeting Jesus again for the first time. And when they, you know, and it's the sense of like, here's G, oh, here's the Jesus that, that I was told loved me. It's the one that comes to me when I am in survival mode and going through the same thing, right? It's not that I'm uh, the terrible person separated. It's that I've always been loved and not being told this again, right? There's something truly, truly beautiful about that. Absolutely. Yeah. No, thanks for sharing that. That, that one was good. That one was good. So, so in that sense, right. Um, you know, we keep talking about, about going backward, going backward in order to get forward. Once we take that journey backward and we have our shells, right? And uh, they're in the jar, so to speak. And uh, we're able to redeem some. And, and that's an important thing. How does presence look? How do we practice presence knowing what we now know or remembering what we now remember? Yeah, there's an, a, there's an attentiveness that starts to happen when we, especially when we see the story that unfolds or has unfolded because a lot of times when we really dig into these things we then begin to check off the events since and begin to see the influence of these 
this particular memory going forward. So if it's a memory that gave us our image of God, we start to see all these places where we acted or reacted out of that. And so those can those are the ones that we look back and try to redeem. But then when we come into the present moment, we if we if we're aware of this, if we're awake to it, we start to see how it can influence the things that are in front of us uh, from the way that we read the scriptures. You know, if we've had a a punitive idea of God for a long time, that God is the Tums munching divinity waiting to smash us with lightning bolts. <laughs> we find ourselves sitting in front of a passage of scripture or sitting in a service or scrolling through Twitter and we feel that pang like, oh gosh, that story is trying to, it's trying to come back here. And so there's an awareness that comes. I think the practice, um, I think the Ignatian practice of examine is yes. really, really helpful when it comes to this. Uh, and I, in the book, I talk about doing an examination of memories mm-hmm. and applying the principles of the examine to a particular situation in the past, but bringing it into the present. Now we have, we have this tool. We have this insight that's now a gift that helps us to look into the present moment with a different set of lenses and say, why, why is it that I, for a lot of people, it's entering into a process of deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And they're wondering, why Why do I feel like I'm just not as excited about the church that I've been a part of for all these years as I used to be? And now they have this diagnostic to say, well, my image of God is changing. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to dismantle the story that I've always carried and trying to be gentle and compassionate with it <laughs> and yeah, not saying, yeah. oh, you guys, you guys have completely fallen off the boat and I have this inside. <laughs> And you guys are terrible, and I'm going to burn the place down on the way out. It's more, I love all of you so much, and I am grateful for what has happened and how you've, where you've brought me to. I, I just can't, I just can't go any further. Yeah. And there is so much. I just constantly want to give people freedom in that to say there is going to come a point in time where the little funeral you need to have is for your partnership with a particular congregation or tradition. Mm. You may need to you may need to die to that. And that may be a part of a story being redeemed. That may be a part of a story being redeemed as you enter a process of deconstructing some things that you always felt were perfect and unassailable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be any a number of reasons, but giving people the freedom to do that, I think that's one of the things that a redeemed memory helps us to do is we begin to feel confident in, I know the story that brought me here. I don't know that that's the story going forward. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. And to know that that's okay. Yeah. And to, and to know that your eternal salvation is not affected by that. Yeah. Uh, and to know that you're still loved in that. Yeah. And we as your pastors hate to see you go, but so there's a place where we have to die to ourselves a bit. Right. Am right. I, do I love you enough to let you go on to the next stage in the journey? And if I don't, want you to go do i really know you well enough as my neighbor to love you well and maybe it's my story that's cropping up uh my story has always been you know maybe and hypothetically you know maybe my story has always been that success my value is linked to the success and the growth of my congregation well if we're if we're making people healthy they probably are going to leave at some point that's the healthy thing it is okay that's important. You know, I, I always say, you know, 
we need we need a safe place for deconstruction and ideally we can be the safe place for reconstruction as well we can be the the, the safe place to make new memories and oftentimes that doesn't work out and, yeah. and so how do you celebrate something that needed to happen and then a moving onward and outward from it uh when it affects you directly and, and yeah. not always for the best it's a good question that i continue to you know the trite phrase die to self there's a little bit of die to self with that every time you know absolutely I think um, I think one of the things I appreciate when you practice this presence or when you practice these next steps, uh, the book has a lot of um, a lot of practical practices, uh, for lack of a better term. Talk to us about some of those. What are some of the ways that, that somebody listening who's going through this journey right now might be able to, you know, unearth memories that are helpful uh, or or move forward in ways that um, you know redefine or, or recreate new life. One of one of the ones that I feel like is most helpful is is to interrogate or to encounter a memory in what I would call a safe space practice. And so I ask people to envision um, the safest place they know and to enter into that space, but to do it in the presence of Jesus and to imagine what Jesus would look like and imagine his eyes and the kindness of his presence. And in that spot to interrogate their memories. And so that's that's one that's not in the book, but that's one that I typically invite people to do first. Because we do, and I keep coming back to this, it does need to be a space, it needs to be a journey where we know we're not alone. Because I feel like a lot of the fear we have in dealing with the past is we feel like we're walking into it naked. And just nobody on our flank, and I, I don't want to use too much war terminology, but no one surrounding us, and no one supporting us, and no one watching out for us. Um, so to know that God is with us in that. I talk a lot about narrating a memory. So a practice of taking a specific piece, something that comes to mind. And what I, what I ask people to do is, as you read, more than likely something is going to come up. And as people have been listening to this and thinking about their own memories, there's a good chance that something rose to the surface. It may not, you may be like, well, that's not really significant. Why do, why do I need to, I would say whatever that is, take it apart because mm. it's in there. And the fact that you retrieved it means that it has some meaning to you because there's a, pl- there's plenty of stuff we forget and there's plenty of traumatic things we forget. Our brain has right. a great system of like opening the trap door and nope, we're not going to keep that one. That one sucks. Um, so whatever has come to mind, to narrate it, to do like you would do if you were giving testimony uh, of a crime scene, or if you don't want to go that negative route, if you were to write this into a, a movie, how would it look? Give the details, the smells. And what that does, it's a very Ignatian thing to do. Uh, it's an entering in, entering back into that moment. And that's going to help us to see it a little more clearly uh, because it takes us away from saying, well, that was the time when I was abused. And it takes us into a time of saying, I was abused and this is how it happened. Mm-hmm. And I use a pretty extreme example there. Yeah. But yeah. there is some, some power to that. And walking into it and seeing the details and the specifics of it and getting, our, getting us to see why that has hung with us for so long. Uh, those are two practices that are really important. The other, I think, is to to craft what's called a future memory. 
it's a really interesting idea. I'd never, I'd never thought of, but when I read it, I, I was like, or, you know, heard about it. I was like, wait, what, what is Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was the first I'd heard. Well, I did two things. When I put that in a book, which was challenging enough Two, I did it in a chapter on the book of revelation where I'm in the middle of writing it. <laughs> Are you really going to do this? You're going to take on the sexiest book in the Bible. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, but the idea that there are there are memories we have that actually fortify us. Um, they're memories that the, the baddest, the darkest, the worst has already happened and we're still here. And that becomes a memory that sort of fortifies us for whatever might come. And so for the book of Revelation, that memory was, listen, guys, Babylon has fallen. All Babylons fall. They always do. People with this, you know, extreme views of power, people who want to abuse you, they always fall. It always happens. So this period of time is not eternal. The suffering doesn't last forever. You remember when that happened the first time? Okay, carry that with you into this next thing. And so developing that future memory, when we look backwards and we see what we've survived, we then can say, that's happened before. So whatever comes next, I'm not alone. I'm beloved. And I have the ability to face this with a strength that comes from acknowledging that that happened in the past. And that's why it's so important not to leave it behind. Because we lose the energy and the gift that we have towards this future conflict or future suffering or, or future relationships. You know, Some of us grew up with parents whose marriages we don't want to emulate. Great. See that and just say, okay, I remember that happening. That's not what I want to see happen in the future. In my, when I turn this particular age, when I have my midlife crisis, um, that's, I'm not going there. And so it becomes this thing we project into the future and say, whatever may come, I'm, I know I'm not going to do that. Yeah, most definitely. And I think, uh, you know, Richard Rohr is someone who says the truth will set you free, but first it makes you miserable. And so, so in those pains, yeah, you know, in those pains, it, it feels pretty miserable. Um, but the beautiful truths that come out of that are, are like, hey, I can be, uh, I can be better, or I, I can be more whole, or, or I know that this thing's going to lead me to some really dumb pain. Um, and I can avoid that, you know, so it's like having gone through it, having gone through it, it's like we discover the truth in it, but we have to go through it first. So, so that future memory is important because it reminds us like, Hey, you don't have to go back and do that again. So last question is just, you know, it's a question that we can end on, which is for you, what was the most profound memory in regards to your own faith journey? And if you don't want to share it, you don't have to, but I'm I'm going to ask. I think uh, there are. As soon as you said that, there were like three or four that came to mind, but I think I'm just going to share this one. So I I grew up in a tradition called the Church of the Nazarene. So a Christian denomination that's known for being pretty conservative, uh, still has a zero tolerance policy for alcohol, um, fairly conservative in the way they see the Bible. And that's where I felt this drawing to become a pastor. And life has changed since then. You know, the, the calling, quote unquote, that I received back then has changed a lot. I've begun to see calling more in terms of the way Parker Palmer talks about it as something that comes from within rather than something that's put on us from outside. Uh, but all that to say, receiving a call like that when you were in that tradition meant you went to Bible college 
and you did the Bible college thing. And so I, where I went to undergrad was a Nazarene Bible college in Ohio and it was super conservative and just pretty tight. But I do remember for chapel one year, we brought in Brennan Manning and maybe some of your listeners know who that is. Maybe they don't, but just a incredible Franciscan, former Franciscan priest, uh, writer, um, struggled deeply with alcoholism throughout his entire life, but wrote books like Abba's child and, uh, ruthless trust and, um, the ragamuffin gospel, big influence on rich Mullins, the musician, rich Mullins, but he came to chapel and he came into our preaching class afterwards. And so it was me and about 15 other people. And he taught for a little bit and he's so soft spoken and, you know, wears these jeans that have like multiple patches on them. Like, dude, you're he's speaking and, you know, he'll stop and go out for a smoke and then come back in and he's got, you know, his sweater on and all that. It's memories just all flying together (laughs) anyway. So he's talking to us in our preaching class. And then he asked our professor if he can offer us a blessing. And he said, sure, absolutely. And so he asked us all to bow our heads And as we're bowing our heads and we have our eyes closed, his voice starts moving around the room. And what we realize is he's walking desk to desk and he's laying his hand on the back of each person and he's offering each of us specifically this just very simple, very kind, very holy word or two about what we're going to do with the rest of our lives. And that was so powerful. It's something about that like physical touch and there was still that like, like celebrity thing going on to where you could be like, Oh my gosh, Brandon Manning touched my head, (laughs) but that doesn't last very long. Uh, it's sort of, it it really passed away quickly to that was, that was something more than just a guy putting his hand on the back of my head. I don't know what it was. I I don't have the phenomenology to explain it, but it has always hung with me as a, a very important thing. Um, that someone would want to bless me for what I was about to do. And uh, I've taken that very seriously ever since. Yeah. I mean, I thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. It's a, it's quite a calling. It's quite a calling that, uh, that you have, that you've been given. That's a cool story. So in this calling, you've written a couple of books. You're the, you're the teaching pastor. Is that the title? Uh, no, now the title is Theologian in Residence. Theolo- oh, you've moved up. You've moved Come up. on. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So yeah, talk to us about where we can find you, where we can order your books, where we can hear you speak, all that stuff. Yeah. Books are available. Amazon, um, any, wherever fine books are sold, Jonathan, uh, you can pick up those books. Um, my website is just my name, caseytigret.com, C-A-S-E-Y. T-Y-G-R-E-T-T.com. There's a bunch of stuff on there. I also host a podcast called Otherwise. Uh, you can find links to that on my website as well. And I'm on the social medias if you would, if anybody listening wants to chat more about this. But uh, yeah, and speaking wise, there's dates listed on the website. A lot of those are getting canceled right now. But um, yeah, so that's a place where people can find out more. And I'd love to chat with people. If you have Anybody has questions about this whole journey of dealing with memories, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about it. Thanks so much for that invitation. Greatly appreciate it. Greatly appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Casey Tiger, for being on Midrash Podcast with us. You bet, man. You bet.
Thank you so much for listening to the Midrash NYC podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Casey Tigrit. If you want to learn more about Casey, you can go to CaseyTigrit.com. You can buy his new book, As I Recall, on any of the websites, anywhere you'd like. And don't forget to check out the rest of the Midrash NYC podcast that we have. You can go to wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it be Spotify, Podbean, iTunes, and all of the rest. And don't forget to leave us a rating. Thanks so much, everyone. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Williams.